Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to continue to cover Article 12 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the various issues that need clear confession with regard to the other factions, heresies, and sects that never embrace the Augsburg Confession, specifically the erroneous articles of the Schwenkfeldians, New Arians, and Anti-Trinitarians. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Paul Kane. He is the senior pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church and headmaster of Martin Luther Grammar School in Sheridan, Wyoming. He's also the secretary and webmaster as a permanent member on the board for the Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education. Pastor Kane, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you very much. Howdy from Wyoming. Indeed. And it's certainly an honor to have you and glad that you could find some time to work us in amidst all of those things that you are doing. Thank you for all of your excellent work and so many various areas of ministry with the parish and Lutheran education and your other efforts as well. Thank you for the work that you're doing there. It's a great joy to us. Indeed. All right. So as we dig in today, again, we're in this final article of the Formula of Concord, Article 12. And it's what I've described as kind of a catch-all article, and it's dealing with the various factions and sects that have never embraced the Augsburg Confession, as it says in that kind of subtitle. And so before we look at some more of the erroneous teachings of those various sects here today, I want to just remind us again, going back to what we covered about three episodes ago, to that first paragraph. I'm just going to go ahead and read that again for us. This is paragraph one of Article 12 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord. In order that heresies and sects may not be pinned on us silently, for in the preceding explanation we have made no mention of them, We intend at the end of this writing simply to make a list. The list will show the articles in which the heretics of our time err and teach contrary to our Christian faith and confession to which we have often referred. All right, so that's just a reminder for us that there are a lot of various points, different articles of doctrine that have been covered in the previous 11 articles, but there are a few that have not been and are specifically associated with some different groups. And perhaps some of these points are related to some of the various articles of Christian doctrine that have been addressed already in the previous articles, as we've seen going through some of the errors of the Anabaptists, for instance. But as these are errors specifically associated with particular groups, the confessors just want to be sure to cover them in specifics, naming the groups and the errors, especially as some of these points are things that are being pinned on the Lutherans, as it says, But these things are not Lutheran teachings. They belong to others. So in the last three episodes, we've covered the various errors of the Anabaptists. They're definitely the group that gets the most attention in this article with an extensive list of errors. And so it took us some time to go through that article or that section of this article. 
but we're going to continue to make our way through the list. And today we're going to cover three more groups. And the first faction that we're going to look at today is the Schwenkfeldians. But before we actually read that particular list of errors, what can you tell us, Pastor Kane, about who Schwenkfeld is and why are his teachings going to be addressed here? Well, this fellow, Caspar Schwenkfeld, is basically a contemporary of Martin Luther. He was a layman. He'd studied at Cologne and Frankfurt under Oder. Early supporter, later turned against the Reformation in a significant way. He had spread the uh, Reformation to Silesia. So think Central Europe, Poland, parts of what is today Germany or the Czech Republic. And as he got estranged from the Reformation, he began teaching very, very differently. He rejected justification. He rejected scripture as the only source of our teaching and our practice. He questioned the sacraments as means of grace. He questioned infant baptism. And notably, because of the section that he shows up here in the formula, the Augsburg Confession too. His followers adopted his surname, and he kept fleeing persecution from place to place. It's a rather sad story when you think about it. Yeah, and well, as you indicated there, he was an early supporter of Luther and the Reformation, and then turned against it. And as you pointed out, I think that kind of continues to make the point of what we see here in the way that this article is presented. It says that these are factions and sects, so these groups never embrace the Augsburg Confession. And as we talked about with the Anabaptists as well, some of them early on would say that they were with the Lutherans, you know, as Zwingli, the sort of leader of the Anabaptists, said he was with Martin Luther and so forth. But then it became very clear that they never really embraced the Augsburg Confession and the doctrinal teachings of the Lutherans. And so now we're going to see that with Schwenkfeld too, you know, early supporter, but then as you actually get into the theology, very clearly not sharing a confession with the Lutherans, right? Indeed, indeed. A lot of folks glommed on to the Augsburg Confession when it suited them, when it helped them. And so it became very necessary for the Lutheran confessors to say, hey, they're not us. Here's what we believe, teach, and confess. And also clearly, here's what we reject and condemn. That's no part of us. Now, when you say they glommed on when it suited them, do you mean maybe politically? Does that tend to be the kind of common theme is when there's a political advantage they'll associate with the Lutherans? That's very true. At different times in early Reformation history, there may be that political benefit that if Catholic is tolerated, if Lutheran is tolerated, well, we're not Catholic, we don't want to be, but if we can identify with the Lutherans and teach our own stuff, maybe we can get away with it. Yeah, and I highlight that just again because of that connection with the Augsburg Confession that was so groundbreaking what happened there. They present this before the Holy Roman Emperor, and it basically becomes legal then to become a Lutheran Christian, which is groundbreaking the Holy Roman Empire at that time. And so there are lots of other groups out there that don't have that status, but can get a little independence and freedom, if you will, from the Roman Church by associating with the Lutherans. And so, yeah, I think it's a political thing as well. Anyway, let's go ahead and dig into these three factions. We've got a lot to cover here today, so let's go ahead and get to it. So I'm going to read statements one and two. This picks up with paragraph 20 in article 12 of the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, 
Once again, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is Article 12 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, Other Factions, Heresies, and Sects that Never Embrace the Augsburg Confession. These are the erroneous articles of the Schwenkfeldians, paragraph 20.1. All those who regard Christ as a creature according to the flesh have no true knowledge of Christ as the reigning king of heaven. Paragraph 21.2. By exaltation, Christ's flesh has assumed all divine properties with this result. Christ as man is in might, power, majesty, and glory altogether as regards degree and position of equal essence to the Father and to the Word. So now there is only one essence, property, will, and glory of both natures in Christ. And now Christ's flesh belongs to the essence of the Holy Trinity. Thus far the epitome. All right, so these first two statements in regards to the Schwenkfeldians deal with the person of Christ, which as we frequently recall on Concord Matters here is central to all of our theology and really central to all of Christian theology, period. And we've seen some of this sort of thing come up just recently with the Anabaptists as we went through their erroneous errors. And so what then, Pastor Kane, is the essence of these errors here with the Schwenkfeldians with regard to the person of Christ? And why is this a dangerous error that we want to avoid? Or what does it lead us to if we start to go down this path with this error and its claims? Well, let's talk about incarnation. It sounds a little strange to say, but it helps people embrace the word. If you're going through the soup aisle and you see chili con carne, it's chili with flesh, with meat. The incarnation is Jesus in human flesh, true God and true man. But consider how these paragraphs are written. The confessors take these statements and they say them as if the Schwinkfeldians are saying them themselves. So we look for the important words. We look for Christ. We look for what they're saying about Christ. And they are basically denying the incarnation, the fleshness of the Christ. That's a big problem because when it comes to Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus in the flesh. And with the resurrection, we celebrate not merely a spiritual event, but the physical resurrection of a dead Jesus, who is still true God and true man. If you deny basic things about Jesus, you end up in trouble with Jesus, of course, but also with what the Word says about Jesus. We could go to the epistles of John, and anyone who denies Jesus coming in the flesh well, that's a big problem. And so that scripture helps us, particularly in these first two erroneous articles. <laughs> I really like that. You obviously work with classical education and Latin to make that connection for us there. But that's great. It, it really is a great way to help us remember and understand the importance of the incarnation. Carney, definitely the root there. And that's important because the incarnation is clearly central to Christian theology. Christ comes in the flesh. And so, like you said, if you have a problem with that central teaching, well, then you have a big problem. And so just building on that a little bit, then what specifically is their downfall in these doctrines, building on their downfall and not having a right understanding of the incarnation? The downfall is essentially they're embarrassed of Jesus' manhood. So they make him more God 
and less man. Christ's flesh belongs to the essence of the Holy Trinity we have there. And there you end up with a confusion of the persons because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by definition, is a spirit, and the Father has never been incarnate. So I guess, yeah, that's kind of also what I was going for, too, is this seems connected with a lot of other, well, I guess heresies would be the word I'm looking for, as that is what we're saying about these teachings in this article. And heresies, as we've talked about on the first episode on this article, are teachings that are against orthodox theology. And most often, the heresies that have come up all throughout history come back to errors in teaching with regard to the Trinity and or the person of Christ. And of course, the various heresies are usually very closely connected. We talked a lot on this show on how sometimes it's difficult to keep them all straight because sometimes it's just in the minutia that there's differences in some of these heresies. But they really generally do boil down to, again, the Trinity. And I like what you brought in there too, the two natures of Christ. And generally with Christ, it is it's trying to isolate one of the natures and pit one against the other or something of that nature. And that does seem, at least to me, where they're at on this, right? I mean, not to oversimplify it too much, but they really do have heretical teachings on Christ and the Trinity. Yes. A study of the ancient heresies will get to a lot of Christological issues, as well as even a supposed hierarchy within the Trinity. Over on my shelf, I'm looking at Martin Chemnitz, The Two Natures of Christ. It's a big, thick tome, much like a Tom Clancy novel. It's well worth the read to help better understand how to get it right and to avoid getting these things wrong. That's really funny because I was looking at mine too. My bookshelves are right above my desk in my office and I was finding myself looking up that as well. And of course, Martin Chemnitz was one of the confessors here in the Formula of Concord as well. So that work is definitely related to the sort of things that are addressed multiple times throughout the formula and is an excellent read. I commend it also. Uh, maybe we can get to covering some details of it and how to engage that work sometime on this show in the future. But for now, we need to go ahead and push forward here in this work of Chemnitz and Andre and others with the Formula of Concord, the epitome of the Formula of Concord. So let's get into some more of these erroneous articles of the Schwenkfeldians. So again, that word erroneous, as I've said, I want to highlight going through the formula here, especially as we can lose it if we're just listening to the audio and not reading along. And I know we can tune in and out of things when we're just listening. So you may jump in and hear something and think, wait a minute, we don't agree with that. You're right. We don't agree with these statements. These are erroneous. That means they are wrong, incorrect, false, faulty, flawed, inaccurate, invalid, misguided, unfounded, unsound, untrue, whatever words from a thesaurus you want to use there. These are statements that are in error with Orthodox Christian theology. And that's important to keep in mind as I'm going to take these erroneous points, and there's several of them here, uh, three through eight. So picking up with paragraph 22 here, point three. The ministry of the church, the word preached and heard, is not the means God the Holy Spirit uses to teach people and work in them the saving knowledge of Christ, conversion, repentance, faith, and new obedience. Paragraph 23.4, the water of baptism is not how God the Lord seals the adoption of sons and works regeneration. Paragraph 24.5, bread and wine in the Holy Supper are not means through and by which Christ gives us his body and blood. Paragraph 25.6, a Christian who is truly regenerated by God's spirit can perfectly keep and fulfill God's law in this life. Paragraph 26.7, 
a congregation, church, that does not excommunicate or regularly ban people is not truly Christian. Paragraph 27.8, a minister of the church who is not truly renewed, regenerate, righteous, and godly cannot helpfully teach other people or distribute genuine true sacraments. All right, thus far the epitome. All right, once again, obviously these are those who never embrace the Augsburg Confession, and these are erroneous articles that we do not agree with. And it becomes very clear when they start to talk about baptism, the bread and wine, and the Lord's Supper. And these are definitely things that we've covered in some of the other articles as we've gone through the formula and that we saw show up also in the Anabaptist theology as well. But these are erroneous teachings of the Schwenkfeldians, and so we want to point out where we have disagreement and thus no unity of confession with that group on very key and important doctrinal points. And though it may seem like just a list of various things, and it may not be immediately evident, these are all kind of related. They all really have to deal with the ministry of the church in word and sacrament. We see that obviously in baptism and the Lord's Supper, but that is also what is going on with who is a Christian, who can be in the church, and who can administer in the church as well. And as we look at these, what at least jumps out to me is I think it's striking how much these errors here seem to be in not believing that the word and sacraments actually do anything, which of course we as Lutherans do, so we obviously don't agree with these teachings. And yet the astonishing thing, at least to me, is that in contrast to not believing the word and sacraments actually do anything, the one thing that they definitely do positively believe is that Christians can keep the law of God perfectly in this life, or at least they have that expectation. Otherwise, you can't be in the church or you should immediately be excommunicated from the church. And we saw some of that also with the Anabaptists as well. And so it's interesting that they deny the word, specifically the word preached to bring the Holy Spirit and the word and spirit and the sacraments. But then for them, you're not really a true Christian unless you keep the word perfectly. And so that just seems an interesting contradiction. And for me, such contradictions always come back to a regular theme on this show coming from my guy CFW Walter. And what it really is, is this. It tends to boil down to a failure in the proper distinction of law and gospel. I think specifically of Walther's ninth thesis in relation to these points of the Schwenkfeldians. The ninth thesis says this, In the fifth place, the word of God is not rightly divided when sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law are directed not to the word and the sacraments, but to their own prayers and wrestlings with God in order that they may win their way into a state of grace. In other words, when they are told to keep on praying and struggling until they feel that God has received them into grace. And I think that is the contradiction with the Schwenkfeldians here. They don't properly distinguish the law and the gospel. They don't distinguish the law in its proper place in the Christian life because they don't believe the word and sacraments deliver the spirit to justify and sanctify. And so they don't direct believers to these means of God's gospel grace. Instead, they just turn them back into the law and their own keeping of it as a sign of God's grace. So anyway, that's my thoughts. Of course, I could just be going off on one of my regular tangents that I like to on this show and bringing Walther in. But what's your take on this, Pastor Kane? Would you also say that the core problem here is an improper distinction of law and gospel? I really would. That is a big part of what's going on here. You have to wonder if Schwinkfeld himself actually believed and could preach the gospel, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. If you get the gospel wrong, you get the sacraments wrong, the delivery of the forgiveness of sins. 
And if you get the sacraments wrong, at least how scripture presents them, then you have to come up with substitutes, substitute sacraments in order to get you right with God if Jesus isn't doing the whole job. Now, there's a couple of ways to do this, but they're all the law. It's all back on your shoulders, your piety, your prayers, your words, your good deeds, your experience, your emotion. And another way we could talk about this is mysticism. I didn't mention before that Schwenkfeld was a mystic. He liked to read some of the medieval folks. And even a St. Louis guy like me knows what Dr. Marquardt said about mysticism. It begins in the mist. It's kind of foggy. It centers on I. It's all about you and what you do. And it ends in schism. And wherever Schwinkfeld went after he abandoned the Reformation, after he abandoned biblical preaching and teaching, it only led to division. So a proper distinction of law and gospel is essential to keeping Jesus right, according to scripture. Jesus does 100% of the saving. Anytime that number drops below 100%, you know there's going to be a problem. It's really an idea, properly distinguishing law and gospel. I would like to see Lutherans to export. American evangelicalism would be a lot more gospel-focused if it would properly distinguish law and gospel. That is well said, and I really liked how you brought that together for us when you said that if you get Christ wrong, then you get the gospel wrong, then you get the sacraments wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent point. And I like when we bring that out on the show, because really that is what the show and really the Lutheran confessions are about. As we go through all the various articles of our Christian doctrine, they're all various entry points into talking about Christ. Christ is the center of all of our doctrine. Thus, when there are errors in doctrine, like about the sacraments, there are errors about the gospel itself, and then there are errors about Christ. And so then I think that basically you've already answered my next question for you, but maybe you could just talk a little bit more and to follow up on this then. Really, this isn't just a bunch of various errors as we might think of various in that they're just kind of different points collected together, as you might think as I've even called this a catch-all article, but these really are related to one another. Namely, that they all relate back to what you said. It's all about Christ. And so if they have Christ wrong, they have these various but related points wrong about Christ, right? Yes. They're all related to works righteousness as a religious alternative, an alternate religion, if you will, to that of Christ. When you start denying one of God's promises, part of God's word, part of scripture, it leads to other things, and the dominoes just keep falling as you fall under mysticism, you believe your experience, you believe your emotions. Almost anything or everything can be elevated falsely over God's word, and that's the big problem that we see going on here. And that would sound very familiar to us even still today, even though we're talking about the time just after the Reformation with the Schwenkfeldians in terms of the formula here. But these particular errors really do sound familiar to us even still today. Because if we consider the teachings of quite a lot of churches in America, what I broadly call American evangelicalism, and I would say that we still see a lot of these errors work out in how they conceive of the church and how they live as Christian congregations or practice as Christian congregations, I guess I should say, even still today. 
And so would you like to add anything about where you see some of these errors maybe still around today? Well, it is sad that there is nothing new under the sun. The devil does a very efficient job of recycling old junk in new ways. Calvinism denies baptismal regeneration. They deny the real presence of the body and blood in bread and wine. Methodism gives us the myth of perfect holiness, perfect sanctification, this side of heaven. Uh, some of these Schwinkfeldian articles could have been taken as suggestions for different groups in history or today when they were meant to be warnings. Charles Finney and revivalism really denied the power of the word. And that's why he said you need to use these other measures to make the service, to make the preacher more exciting. In his own autobiography, he said the word just can't get it done. He denies the power of the word. The further down the list you go, you see other things. Number seven, when it comes to church discipline and excommunication, Dr. Corby, who at times taught at both of the Missouri Synod seminaries, he warned us that this would be a temptation. And then finally, item number eight under the Schwenkfeldians, this is Donatism reborn. It's a very good definition of what they were saying a very, very long time ago when some pastors during the persecution of Christians under Roman Emperor Diocletian apostatized. What do you do with their pastoral acts now that they're fallen away? And furthermore, can you take them back? But that's uh, a question beyond the erroneous article of the Schwinkfeldians, number eight. Excellent points. And indeed, we have quite a few other points to make beyond number eight of the erroneous articles of the Schwinkfeldians, namely two other factions, the New Arians and the Anti-Trinitarians. But we'll take those up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio, or anytime on KFUO.org, or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross. matters as we continue talking with Pastor Kane and Sheridan, Wyoming, making our way through the end of the epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 12, Other Factions, Heresies, and Sects that Never Embrace the Augsburg Confession. And as we work through a whole bunch of points from three different groups here that are in error, they are in contradiction with the sound teaching of Scripture, and thus the Lutherans reject these points. In the first half of the show, we talked about the eight erroneous articles of the Schwenkfeldians. And now we're going to go ahead and push forward and jump into the error of the New Arians. And here we just have one error listed. So I will just go ahead and read that from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 12, Paragraph 28. Christ is not true, essential, natural God of one eternal divine essence with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is only adorned with divine majesty, inferior to and alongside of God the Father. All right, once again, that is something that we reject. We do not agree with that teaching. 
And so it is heretical. And as you highlighted for us in the first half of the show, Pastor Kane, when it comes to heresies in the church, there is really nothing new under the sun. A lot of them are all related, and most of them really boil down to, as you said in the first half of the show, a lot of them have Christological errors and also then are related to Trinitarian errors. And so here we have another error about who Christ is. And yet this also seems to be not really another error as if it were something entirely new, but rather related to something old that is really just popping up again, as even the title for this group calls them the New Arians. So not to steal your thunder here, Pastor Kane, but obviously this is them related to that old heretic Arius. So go ahead and review for us then who the original Arians were and tell us about the new Arians and why this error really seems to be so persistent and dangerous. Well, Arius is a long time ago. We think he was born about 256. He's got connections to Libya, to Egypt, but also ideas and a church convention. He focused on God the Father a lot, trying to make Christ subordinate to the Father. So, church convention at Nicaea, fancy title, council. At the first council of Nicaea, convened by Emperor Constantine in 325, they wrote the original version of what we call the Nicene Creed. It has the first article, the second article, and then I believe in the Holy Spirit. But what was really at issue there is who is Jesus? What is the relation between Father and Son and Holy Spirit? Folks like Arius would be very comfortable with saying that the Christ, the Son, is of similar substance to the Father, which is why the Nicene Creed says that the Son is of one substance with the Father in English translation. Your listeners know more about Arius and this church convention than they think they do, because one of the other bishops at this convention was a fellow by the name of Nicholas, Nicholas of Myra, which is part of modern-day Turkey. And there's even a song about a physical confrontation between St. Nicholas and Arius. I saw Santa slapping Arius. And allegedly, this actually happened at a church convention, the First Council of Nicaea, because the fella Arius didn't believe rightly from Scripture about Jesus. So who are these new Arians? It's become very popular these days to do a reboot. And some of them are okay, and some of them are truly unfortunate. Whether it's a reboot of Star Trek or Full House on a new Netflix show that continues the story. The new Aryans, they embraced a lot of different individuals, a lot of different groups. Some things are very, very confusing. Like instead of one God and three persons and three persons and one God, you end up with a belief in two gods. And even some Wittenberg students went wrong. John Campanus, and then there is even a Spanish fellow involved in this teaching, Michael Servetus. He's from Spain, but the Calvinists in Geneva burned him in 1553 for not believing in the Trinity. There's some other fellows involved in all of this too. And the Socinians, you end up with Italian guys whose name becomes Latinized just as a thing that they did at this time in the Reformation. So Arians are rebooting some of the ideas of 
Arius and his followers that were refuted by the Nicene Creed and that first church council at Nicaea. I like how you frame this here for us in calling this a reboot, because I think that's really helpful for us in understanding the new Arians. And once again, nothing new under the sun. So like it seems in Hollywood with rebooting old movies and shows, so also we just keep seeing the errors being rebooted again. But I guess this would also then beg the question that if you had Arius with this error in the 4th century and the error is being rebooted by the new Arians in the 16th century, is this an error that we would see rebooted or still present in any theology or denomination still today? You will see it occasionally in preachers that are on TV, the internet, radio. When I was attending seminary in St. Louis and I just happened across a Christian who attended a local megachurch. We were talking about recent sermons that we'd heard, and it was right after Trinity Sunday, and this person, who'd been a Christian for some 30, 40 years, had never heard the word Trinity. So on occasion, you will hear these ideas repeated. Yeah, and specifically here they deny once again who Christ is in the Trinity. They say that he has the divine majesty, but that he's inferior to and alongside God the Father. It's really just kind of a confusing idea that they have here of who Jesus is. And so to maybe dig into that a little bit more, is the idea the new Arians have here with this divine essence of sorts, that Jesus is really just a human with some special magic or God powers or something like that? That's one way you could think of it. The Arians denied the true divinity of Jesus. This took different forms, depending on the speaker and the location. But they get down to the idea that Jesus Christ was created by the Father, he had a beginning, and that if you're going to call Jesus the Christ, Son of God, you're only giving him that title as a courtesy. Not too far removed from some of the other Christological heresies, like Jesus getting adopted into the family. It's dangerous when you start denying clear scripture, on Jesus being true God and Jesus being true man, but all of the forms of Arianism proposed something like similar in substance to the Father, but they would deny that he was of the same substance or consubstantial. Lots of multisyllabic words when you deal with Christological heresies. I think that's a really key point there in what you just said about how it takes on different forms depending on the speaker. I think speaks to the idea of that when you get into these heresies, it really does get down to the minutia and the difference between all these heresies. And then also speaks to the previous point of where we might still see this today is that it is just that it takes on some different forms depending on the speaker. But again, as you said, as the new Arians, this is just the rebooting of the same root idea that they are denying that same substance with the Father in the Trinity which then can be a place for us to transition into the next and final group in this article, the error of the anti-Trinitarians. So there's a Trinitarian error, really, you could say that the new Arians are anti-Trinitarians also, as you pointed out for us. But then in this next group, they're saying, as we'll see here right away, that this is an entirely new sect of anti-Trinitarian errors and not a reboot as you've labeled the new Arians. And so that's an interesting contrast. But let me go ahead and read this era of the anti-Trinitarians. So this is paragraph 29 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 12, The Error of the Anti-Trinitarians. This is an entirely new sect, not heard of before in Christendom. They believe, teach, and confess 
that there is not only one eternal divine essence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they teach that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. Each person has its essence distinct and separate from the other persons of the Godhead. Some in this sect think that all three persons are of equal power, wisdom, and majesty, and glory, just as otherwise three people are distinct and separate from one another in their essence. Others think that these three persons and essences are unequal with one another in essence and properties, so that the Father alone is properly and truly God. Thus far the epitome. Okay, so this, once again, just seems like a really confusing idea here. And, well, maybe a good way to describe this is in this article that is kind of a catch-all article. Maybe this is a catch-all category at the end here. It just seems that way anyway with the sort of talk of some in this sect think and others think kind of language. I don't know. Or maybe it's, like you said, with the New Arians, that it's just different forms depending on the speaker, but a connecting thread in the theological error here or something like that. So, Pastor Kane, what can you add for us here about these anti-Trinitarians, who they were, and what maybe some of those modern counterparts to them that we might recognize still today be? Well, here's more of the list that we were promised all the way back in paragraph number one of this particular article, number 12. There seems to be connection between some of the places that we've heard about. Some of those Italians that were new Aryans, they ended up in Poland as well, Krakow, along with Schwinkfeld himself. But if we're looking today, where do we find the variety of anti-Trinitarians that are on this particular list. You could go really easy and say Unitarians, an offshoot of some progressive Presbyterians of a century gone by. You have those that actually say that Christians believe in three gods or multiple gods. And from there, it's not much of a leap to go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as the Mormons, though they're trying to discourage that term. You end up with a whole plurality of gods because part of their so-called alternate gospel is that each one of their followers can become a god following the example of Jesus. But one that sometimes gets missed when we're talking about anti-Trinitarians is a group that Luther himself knew about in his life. And there's a couple of different editions of the Quran where Luther gives a refutation. He was wondering if Muslims, if Islam, were simply an anti-Trinitarian heresy. And that's a very interesting starting point for trying to understand Islam, whether in the 16th century or the 21st. All right, that is interesting. So go ahead and tell us a little more on that. Well, if you end up reading the Quran, which is something I would only recommend with hesitation and not before bedtime, because it gave me bad dreams and has some rather disturbing Six Commandment things going on in it you will notice that the Quran is basically a conversation where you're only getting half of the conversation. Have you ever sat in a room and someone you love is on phone, but you're not on speakerphone, and they're talking to somebody else, and all you hear is half of the conversation? The Quran does this all the time. They say that God cannot have a consort. God cannot have a girlfriend, a wife, And what they're trying to say is, Jesus cannot be son of God. 
that's what they're getting to. They end up mischaracterizing Christian theology, again, not properly distinguishing law and gospel. There's a lot of works in Islam, especially militant Islam, but they cannot tolerate Jesus as the Son of God. They will take him as a prophet. They will take him as a teacher. The name Jesus in the Quran is Issa, and he speaks the gospel, Injil. But I don't really think Muhammad ever really got the full blast forgiveness of sins confession of the gospel that we know and we cherish and are thankful for as gift. So their understanding of the Trinity is three gods, which tells us they don't understand even the basics of Christian theology. They definitely would be anti-Trinitarians. Yeah, I do think that is an interesting connection, which, as you brought out for us, Luther himself was kind of maybe even wrestling with that idea and saying that in his writings that the Mohammedans, as he would have referenced them, and we would see them called in our translations of Luther's works even today, that these Mohammedans are basically anti-Trinitarians. And I especially think that is an interesting connection going then back to a group that you identified just before that, which is probably the group that we would most often associate with this error would be the Mormons. Well, I don't know if that's right to say. Maybe actually the group that we most often associate is actually the Unitarians, as you said first. But to this connection with the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they are anti-Trinitarians. And I've heard the idea presented before that the Mormons are kind of the American Islam. Of course, we have Islam in America, and there's been many immigrants that have carried their Islamic faith with them as well. So it's not to say that Mormonism is just the American denomination of Islam or something like that. But this is more the idea that if you look at the founding development, some key tenets and some similar themes, I think there can be a case to say that in many ways, Mormonism, while different, there are a lot of similarities and could thus be a sort of American version of Islam, if you will. And I don't know that I'm qualified to talk too extensively about this or anything. I haven't read much or seen an in-depth presentation of it or anything But it is something that I've heard as an idea before. And so I do think that this is an interesting connection that you bring out here that Luther was identifying Islam as an anti-Trinitarian error. Of course, there is also traditionally the connection of Islam going back to Abraham. And the line that is generally traced for Islam is through the servant girl Sarah gives to Abraham, Hagar, and their son Ishmael. So there's an obvious connection for Islam to Christianity and the God of Abraham. But very clearly, Islam is not Christian, as they would also assert very much not Christian as they do not acknowledge the true God of Abraham, as even modern Judaism doesn't. And we know that the true God, the true Christian religion, as we confess in the Athanasian Creed, is the triune God, which of course includes Jesus. And as Mormonism, Islam, Judaism, Unitarians, and any others deny the Trinity as confessed in the Athanasian Creed, that really is an anti-Trinitarian error. Very true. It is quite interesting to see in the military that there are Latter-day Saint chaplains, and part of their uniform, they must wear a cross, which is offensive to Mormon theology. For them, they talk about Jesus. He's very much an example, but the Garden of Gethsemane is more important to them than the cross. We saw this at my first church in the southwest corner of Wyoming. They had an Easter pageant on Good Friday. And only the non-LDS thought there was anything odd with that. But not understanding how we do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God and three persons, and three persons in one God, 
there's some really interesting economic things going on where the Mormon Jesus would come and tell you that I have paid your debt to the Father. But then in a big surprising twist, because there isn't that unity in the Godhead, because the Mormon Jesus paid off your debt to Heavenly Father, you now owe Jesus. And that was such a surprise to learn some 20 years ago. Without the echad, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that unity, you end up with some rather odd teachings that contradict the gospel. And I think this is a place to then wrap up these three groups, but maybe this article as well. And of course, we'll jump to the closing paragraphs and cover those as well. But I thought, again, that that's a very interesting connection in bringing in Islam as an anti-Trinitarian error and what I did in connecting then that to Mormonism and then that you brought in there also that in terms of the military, when it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they would wear the cross, which you said would be offensive to Mormons, but of course is offensive to us as Christians because we would look at them and we would say they are not Christians. So this is where I'm going in terms of wrapping these kinds of things up here that we have identified right from the get-go on this article, which is that all of these erroneous teachings of the Anabaptists, Schwenkfeldians, New Arians, and Anti-Trinitarians are not just some poor teachings, but these are heresies. These are things that we not only disagree with, but are heretical errors, things that are against the true Christian faith. And so when it comes to Islam, obviously we would quite clearly say that they are not Christian. Mormons, I think by and large, a lot of folks can really agree that they are not Christian. However, sometimes you might find some Christians that have a tough time saying that because, again, Mormons themselves even want to somewhat identify themselves as Christians. as They even use that title, once again, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But really, if you get into their doctrines, they are very clearly not Christian, especially according to the Athanasian Creed. But then we might have some more difficulty when it comes to some of the other groups that we've highlighted here going through this article, especially under the Anabaptists, but also in some of the others that we've pointed out where we see some of the various errors play out in their theology. For a lot of those groups, some Christians may have a tough time saying that they are heretical sects that are not Christian. I think some of the ones that we pointed out, a lot of folks might say are Christian. So before we jump into the closing paragraphs, do you have any thoughts on this as it relates to heresy and whether or not a group is Christian or not? Whether Mormons are Christian or not, the answer has changed, frankly, the last 40 or 50 years. If you asked a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints 50 years ago, are you Christian? They would be offended and say, of course not, I'm LDS. But in recent decades, the culture in that body has changed so that it's more advantageous for them to say that they are Christian. And now many of their members are offended if you don't consider them Christian. A few years ago, I got to catechize a lady. She had been raised LDS on the other side of the mountain in the basin part of Wyoming. And she found out that at her place of work, her boss had been LDS and became Lutheran. So she was trying to convert him back and in the process, we ended up talking. We ended up having 750 emails back and forth over the course of a year, where we also had one or two 60 to 90 minute classes a week. 
This is not the typical length of a new member class for me or for most pastors in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, but she asked for it before baptism because she said, comparing LDS teaching and Lutheran biblical teaching is like putting together one of those thousand-piece puzzles, and it's most confusing when you're asking, is this true? Is this Christian? And there are some rare times when the two teachings agreed. But to see her on her baptism day, which was also her daughter's baptism day, and to have her husband out there in the congregation watching with tears was just a remarkable day. To this day, she dearly loves the Bible, the scriptures, as the only word of God, and uh, she's read through the Book of Concord numerous times. This article is not lost on her because she had been an anti-Trinitarian. She had been part of a group that never embraced the Augsburg Confession, and now she does. She's one of us confessing the true faith once delivered to the saints. That is a great example that highlights really how we understand all of these heretical errors. And I'm with you in terms of the typical length of catechesis. I often tell people that when it comes to adult catechesis, I don't have a set amount of time that I meet for catechesis. One thing for sure, it won't be real short, but I weigh out how much catechesis is going to be needed based on where they are coming from and how far we need to go to get them to a confession of the truth of God's word. And I think that relates to the basis of my question here in terms of heresy and so forth as well, because of what is the hub of our theology? Jesus Christ, right? Justification, the article upon which the church stands or falls. And so if we're working with someone coming from a background where you maybe have a few spokes of the wheel missing coming into that hub, maybe disagreements on the Lord's Supper, baptism, liturgy, and so forth, while those are indeed very important as they relate to the hub of our Christian faith, and the whole point of our Lutheran confessions is to show that these various articles on those matters are the true confession of the hub of our Christian faith. Nonetheless, if you are just missing a few of those spokes or those spokes are twisted, and yet you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, then the wheel is weak and in need of some catechesis or it's in danger of coming apart. But if you're coming from a background where you don't even have the Trinity or Jesus for our salvation, Christ crucified for me, for you, if you don't have that, then you have a lot more we need to address. And so I think that is where it then comes down to for heresy and heretical factions as well. It comes back to what is Christian. It really comes down to Jesus. And that is the big connector, I think, in all of these errors is, of course, Jesus for our salvation, right? He is. A clock without a battery is right twice a day, but how do you know? Unless you have an external norm. And Scripture is that for us. Scripture norms the Book of Concord for us. It is a standard, but it is a standard that has to measure up to Scripture, and it does. So rather than looking at Christian theology as a checklist, a list of articles here and there, it is really a good illustration to think about the whole of Christian theology as a bicycle wheel with lots of spokes. And it's not okay to go against Scripture, remove a spoke from your tire. We want the whole thing. We want as much Jesus as possible. Absolutely. And it's not fair, but with just a minute here, I want to wrap up this article in the Formula of Concord with paragraphs 30 and 31. These and similar articles, one and all, with whatever other errors depend on and follow from them, we reject and condemn as wrong, false, and heretical. They are contrary to God's word, the three creeds, the Augsburg Confession and Apology, the small called articles, and Luther's catechisms. All godly Christians of both high and low estate should be on their guard to the extent 
that they hold dear their soul's welfare and their salvation. This is the doctrine, faith, and confession of us all. We will give an account of it on the last day before the just judge, our Lord Jesus Christ. We will not speak or write anything against this doctrine, either secretly or publicly. By God's grace, we intend to persevere in it. After mature deliberation, we have testified in the true fear of God and invocation of his name by signing this epitome with our own hands. All right, thus ends the epitome of the Formula of Concord. Beloved statements here by many Lutheran confessors. We probably could do a whole show on this, so it's not fair, but go ahead, Pastor Kane, and give us what are some things that we can take away from these final words, even as we confess the faith still in our own day. We stand firm in Christ, and we really have no other choice because there is salvation in no one else. We stand firm on Christ and his promises, his forgiveness of sins. Americans, especially during the month of July, are very familiar with words like this. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. These majestic words in paragraph 30 and 31 are the Lutheran equivalent that should be just as beloved in our households, our schools, our churches, as the words of the American Declaration. We set the standard that God's Word is the standard to measure teaching and practice. You've got the list of the components of the Book of Concord here, the creeds, the confession and apology, the small called articles, which is understood to include the treatise, and Luther's catechisms alongside this formula of Concord that builds the Book of Concord. And we dare never forget that the concord we enjoy, the concordia, the harmony that we enjoy as Lutheran confessors is because of the word. And the Lord brings about that harmony in his name and for his sake. That is well said by Pastor Paul Cain. Thank you for joining us for Concord Matters today and talking us through the clear confession of our Christian faith, especially in relation to the erroneous articles, the Schoenfeldians, the New Arians, and the Anti-Trinitarians from Article 12 of the Formula of Concord. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.